So we're going to dive straight into God's Word this morning. We are uh, in the middle of a series, or at the beginning really of a series, that's entitled House of Prayer. And if you're visiting this morning, or if you've missed the last uh, few weeks, a couple of weeks ago, um, our senior pastor laid out um, this teaching. We're one church in many different locations, and uh, we're all in all the congregations, all the locations, journeying through this series. And it's entitled House of Prayer, based on a verse that's in the Gospels where Jesus entered into the synagogue, into the church, and he said, my house will be called a house of prayer. And that's what we're believing for. That's what we want to see more and more in family church. But we are a church that prays, but we want to be known as a house of prayer, amen, where prayer is central to everything that we're about, and it's celebrated in the culture of this church. So last week, uh, we kicked off this series, and we looked at what prayer isn't, and what prayer is. And that message will be available this um, Tuesday online if you want to catch up with that. And if you didn't hear that, I would really encourage you to make sure you listen to that because that was a foundation from which we're building upon. Now, over the next couple of weeks or next few weeks, we're going to talk about two forms of prayer. We're going to talk about personal prayer and then we're going to talk about what is praying together, collective prayer. Often it's known as corporate prayer, but I've often said that to people, corporate prayer. And when you're brand new to church and you've kind of, there's this religious language that we speak, many people are like, okay, so is that like a business? Is that like for a conference? What does corporate prayer mean? And so that simply means praying together. So we're going to look at what it means to pray by ourselves, what it means to have a personal prayer life, and what it also means to pray as a group, as a church community or as a connect group or whatever it might be, because those two things are different. But before we do that, I want to today look at a brilliant question that the disciples asked of Jesus. And really, it's a question that we're asking God throughout this entire series. And it's simply this question, would you teach us how to pray? You see, the disciples had been watching the Pharisees pray, and they'd seen the priest pray, and then they'd seen Jesus, the man they were following, they'd seen him pray, and they'd seen something different and powerful and unique about his prayer life, and they began to realize that the effective life that he was living on the earth came from the conversations that he had with his father. And so they came to him, and they said, would you teach us how to pray? And Jesus responds to their question. So if we're going to spend weeks looking at prayer, it would be kind of stupid to launch straight into that without first looking at what Jesus had to say about the subject, the man who was the best prayer that they could ever have been. So we're going to look at this. It's found in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. It's also in Luke chapter 11. And you'll instantly recognize it as what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer. Right, this is a prayer that maybe you grew up saying in assembly or at home. This is a prayer that's often shared at funerals. This is a prayer that apparently one in four people across the globe every Easter in one form or another will pray this prayer. Still today, statistically, one in four people, whether they know what they're saying, whether they're engaging with what they're saying, that they say this prayer that is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. But what I want to say right at the outset is that actually... This was always meant to be a framework for prayer and not a religious obligation. What I mean by that is that many people have taken this prayer just to be a prayer that we're meant to recite word for word. And many people have this thought that it's almost like this magical Christian prayer that will make God do anything that you need him to do. It's like the prayer that unlocks everything that you need in God. When actually Jesus was teaching this far more as a model for prayer. He was talking about the ingredients that are involved in prayer. He was giving us a framework for what prayer is about. Now, does that mean that it's wrong to memorize the Lord's Prayer? No, obviously not. 
Does it mean that we, you know, can we speak God's, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer back to God? Well, if your heart is engaged in it and you mean the words that you're saying, then yes, of course you can. But what I want us to see is that this wasn't necessarily a prayer we're meant to recite word for word. This was a framework and an example and a model for prayer. So having said that, let's look at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to begin at verse 9. Jesus says, his disciples have come to him and said, would you teach us how to pray? And he shares on some teaching that we're going to look at next week. And then he says this, In this manner therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, there's a lot in there. We're just going to skim the surface in the time that we have today. But we're going to walk through this prayer, this model that Jesus gives to us, and we're going to pull out the main point. So Jesus starts off having had this question thrown at him, and he says, Our Father in heaven. And just that simple introduction to prayer, just that, that four-word introduction to this prayer that he prays is huge. Our Father in heaven. I, I want us to, to look at that just for a moment. And as we do, I want to ask you a question. It's a simple question, but it's such an important question when it comes to prayer. And it's this, who is it you pray to? Who do you pray to? Now, obviously, instantly in your mind, you're thinking, well, it's God. Obviously, what a stupid question. Of course, I pray to God. But, but I'm asking that at a deeper level. Who do you believe God to be when you pray to him? A.W. Tozer, a famous theologian, once said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So, so who is this God that you pray to? When you pray in the morning, in the evening, whenever you pray, what's his countenance towards you? What, what does he think of you? What's his response to you? These are important questions because they shape our attitude to prayer and they actually shape the way that we pray our prayers themselves. Jesus says, our Father. Now remember, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and context is everything, and so maybe there were other people around, but he was speaking predominantly to a Jewish audience that were listening to him. And, and in this moment when Jesus says, this is how you pray, our Father, there would have been like a sharp intake of breath. This would have been huge in this moment because the Jewish people knew God as God. He was just God. He was Yahweh. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, no, no, you can know him intimately. But when you pray, you can know him as an intimate father. He is our father. This was huge. Now, I've said many times before that when it comes to speaking about God as father, many people have difficulty with that because of what they've experienced in their earthly experience of a father. But we know that Jesus reveals God to be the perfect Heavenly Father. And I want us to see that through prayer, when we approach God with that lens of intimacy, we can begin to know God as Abba Father. We can have relationship with this God. But then he doesn't stop there. You see, to pray to God as our Father would be enough, but he goes beyond that because he wants us to know that the God that we pray to is not just all loving, he's also all powerful. And so he says, Our Father in heaven our father in heaven in other words god is not just a nice father who comforts us he goes beyond that he is that but he's also 
what we would term, I don't know, the emperor of the universe. And I don't mean that in some kind of Star Wars way. I mean that as a biblical truth. He is the God for whom nothing is impossible. Do we believe that this morning? And, and here's the important thing, and we're going to look at this more in future weeks. We have to be careful in prayer not to make God smaller than our problems. And for some people, the biggest improvement they could make in their prayer life may be to get a bigger perspective of who their God is. But he's not just a father who cares, but is limited in his power. He is a God for whom nothing is impossible. Now, I don't think there's a verse that sums up those two thoughts together better than Psalm 147, verse 3 to 5. Let's just look at that for a moment. It says, God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars and he calls each of them by name. Great is our God and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. So when we come before God in prayer, the same God who knows all of the stars, made all of the stars, and we know there's hundreds and billions of them, the same God who knows all of the names of those stars is the same God who cares about the fact that your child started school this term. He cares about the fact that you're looking at your bank account wondering how you're going to make it through to the end of the month. He cares about that relational difficulty. He cares about those things that are causing anxiety to rise within you. He's a God who cares. The Bible tells us that that same God who named all of the stars, the same God who's, who the Bible says his understanding is infinite, is the same God who bandages up the wounds of man. He heals the brokenhearted. He heals those who are going through the pain of a messy divorce. He heals those who are going through the pain of relational breakdown. He heals those who are, who are so anxious because of money issues that are mounting up in their life. He's an all-powerful God, yet he's a father who cares. So whenever we pray, we pray to a father who's relational, but we also pray to a God for whom nothing is impossible. Now here's the next phrase in his prayer. Hallowed be your name. Again, just four words that carry so much power and so much depth. So here's what's interesting. Having just said he's our father, so we can know intimacy with him, we can know relationship with him, he then goes on to say that really we should be careful not to come to a place where we are over-familiar with the God that we serve. We need to make sure we are not over-familiar. Now, you've heard me say before that I believe a modern church has done a whole lot right in terms of making the gospel accessible to the world around us. But if, the, if the, the, the modern church is guilty of anything, it's guilty of getting over familiar with God. It's getting, you know, losing its awe of who God is. Let that never be us at Family Church, amen? We always want to be a church that recognize who God is, that carry a reverent awe of who he is, that don't get over familiar with him. So what does it mean to hallow God's name? That's not a term that we use very often, right? I mean, at least I don't. I've ne- Give me a, sh- a wave if you've used the word hallow this week. Okay, that makes me feel okay this morning. We, we may use it for, you know, football people know Wembley is the hallowed turf, but that's about it in terms of my vocabulary when it comes to hallowed. So hallowed means this. It means to esteem as holy, to honour, to show reverence to, to treasure as holy. So when we come before God in prayer, we're not saying you're one of many gods. We're saying you are God. You are holy. You are, there is none like you. And this is so important because we're going to look at next week the fact that prayer should never be formal. 
Right? We can come before God just as we are. We can come before God and we need to pray as true to who we are. So prayer should never be formal. But here's the reality within that. Our hearts should never be casual when we come before God in prayer. So you can be yourself, but we should never come with a casual attitude to who it is we're praying to. Because yes, God is love. And yes, God is full of grace. But he's also holy. He's also a righteous judge. He's also, the Bible says, a God that we should carry a reverent fear of. Too often, we've turned a holy God into this little genie in a bottle. Who will do anything that we ask of him as long as we pray in the right format. And ask him to do the things that we think he wants us to. To do. So when we pray, Jesus says there should be reverence as well as intimacy and relationship. He continues, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, what do those statements mean and how do they make a difference to our prayer life Monday to Sunday? Because again, this series isn't just about us gaining more knowledge, okay? We need to know this, that the entire journey that we're on is not just that we'd end up in November with a bit more knowledge about prayer. We want this to change the culture of who we are as a church community, but also who we are individually. So your kingdom come. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. says, For he has rescued us. God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he has brought us into the kingdom of a son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So through salvation, we know that we've been rescued out of darkness and we are now part of another kingdom, amen. We are part of the kingdom of God. And that should affect everything about who we are and the way that we live. But how does that affect prayer? It means that we pray, God, your will be done. I want your agenda over my agenda in my family, in my finances, in my health. In my career. And as I've said before, and I touched upon last week, so often we're okay with God being in control of this section of our life, or He's the Lord of this section or this section. But when it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're saying is, God, everything about me is yours. Everything about our church is yours. God, your will be done in family church heaven. Your will be done in this community. Your will be done in my life, in my marriage, in my parents, whatever it might be. It's saying, God, your will over my will. Now, Jesus didn't just teach this, did he? He actually lived it out. As Gerard spoke of earlier, when he has that moment, and if you fast forward, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible says that he knows what he's about to face. He knows that he's about to go through that physical torment. He knows that spiritually he's going to be separated from the intimacy with the Father in that moment. And so just that thought causes so much stress within his physical body that the Bible says his blood vessels burst in his head and he starts sweating droplets of blood. This is an an outward expression of a turmoil that he's going through within him. And yet even in that moment he prays this prayer, Luke 22, 42. In the Amplified, I love the way it puts it. It says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup of divine wrath from me, yet not my will, but always yours be done. Not my will, but always yours be done. So what is it to pray that kind of prayer? It's a demonstration that God knows best. But at the same time, here's what I want you to know. When you pray your will be done, it's not a shrug of the shoulders. Okay, sometimes I think it's such a Christian phrase that we throw in and God, whatever your will is, and and, and we're not actually meaning that, we just think it's the right thing to say in prayer. So we say, God, whatever your will might be. No, 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 his will, as we talked about in the series before, his perfect 
will is revealed in his word. And so in that moment, we're genuinely saying, God, I want your will over my will. It's not a shrug of resignation. It's not a giving up in prayer. It's saying, God, your will be done in my life. It's an active trust that we're going to look at more in coming weeks. Jesus continues. He says, give us today our daily bread. Because again, prayer can be many different things to different people. But one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things that prayer is, is asking God for help. Now here's why what Jesus said thousands of years ago is still so vital to us today and how we engage with prayer. If I look out this morning, I see there's different ages, different backgrounds, different cultures, different life experiences. There's so many differences represented in the room. But here's something we all have in common. We all have need. Every single one of us here this morning, whether you see it as something that's keeping you up at night and you can't sleep, whether it's just something that's irritating you, all of us in one form or another have needs. And in prayer, God is waiting for us to ask him for help. James 4 verse 2 says, you don't have because you don't ask. And I think that sometimes, because we've understood, as I said last week, that prayer shouldn't just be a shopping list of things that we want from God, right? Because we've understood and we've been taught rightly to seek God's face and not just his hand, some people have taken this to a place where they don't ask God for anything when actually Jesus is saying, give us today our daily bread. James says we don't have because we ask not. So Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. Now, at first hearing, especially if you're new to the word, that can sound kind of strange, right? That kind of sounds a bit out there. Like, why is Jesus talking about bread? But again, we need to understand the culture or the, the audience that he's speaking to in this moment, right? Because he's not saying, I don't know, give us today a slice of Warburton's or give us today a, ho- a, a whole load of Hovis. This isn't about bread. This is about what bread represents. And so he's speaking to a Jewish audience who would have understood that bread was a sign of God's provision in the Old Testament. right? Remember the story, God rescues the nation of Israel out of slavery and captivity in Egypt, and he's journeying them through to the promised land, but on that route as they run out of food, what does he do? He provides. He provides in the form of manna, this bread that they would have every single day. And so they would only be able to collect enough for that one day. That's what God told them that could happen. And there's something even in that. Because God wants us to go to him for our daily needs. right? When, when God says about coming to him for our needs, it's not just about the big moments. It's not just when you get that bad health diagnosis. It's not just when you're made redundant. It's not just when a friend is in a car crash. Whatever it might be, it's not just in those big moments. He wants to come, us to come before him with our daily needs, both big and small. So let me ask you, in this season, what is your need? What is your need in this season? And are you praying about it? Be specific about what you are asking God for. Speak to him about your needs, big and small. If we want specific answers, we need to pray specific prayers. So often people say, oh, do you know what? I prayed for this and this is what happened. Yeah, because God's responding to what you are asking him for. When we pray, we can ask for daily provision and daily protection. Jesus goes on and he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Other translations, of course, say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, having prayed for our needs to be met, in this moment, I believe that Jesus is asking for one of our deepest and greatest needs 
to be met. Something that we all need, something that we're all striving for, I would label it as peace. Right? What is, what is peace? Peace is inner rest. Peace is total well-being. And here's what I've understood, not only in pastoring, but as being a follower of Jesus Christ for many years. Forgiveness brings us peace. It brings us spiritual peace, but it also brings us relational peace. And Jesus is making a point, a point that should affect how we pray, that to live a fulfilled, overcoming, victorious life, we need to experience peace both vertically, but also horizontally. And so I wonder when it comes to prayer, are we praying about this? Now here's something that we need to understand this morning. I want to lay this out just quickly. This isn't saying we need to be saved again every day. Okay, some people walk around with a sin consciousness based on this prayer. We need to understand there's a difference between sin and sins. Tom doesn't allow me to go into it in depth, but there's a difference between the nature of sin and the committing of sin. So when we were born again, that was only made possible because we recognize our need for a Savior. Amen? His name is Jesus. And, and in that moment of salvation... We didn't just need forgiveness, we needed a brand new nature, otherwise we'd have just gone back to exactly how we were living. And so in that moment of salvation, the Bible says, the old has gone, the new has come. Amen? We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And yet here's the reality. Because the old nature needs to be renewed in the mind, because that nature is dead, but our mind needs to be renewed, there will always be this pull between understanding who we now are and the life that we once used to live. And so all of us at one time or another will still make mistakes, will still sin, will still fall short at times. And if you're sat there saying, well, not me, I'm a new creation, I don't like this teaching, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Well, the Bible says that you're a foolish liar. <gasps> How could you say that, Pastor Steve? I didn't, the Bible says. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we claim we have no sin, if that's you, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. The Bible says, if you believe you never mess up, you are kidding yourself. And if you would stop kidding yourself long enough, you would see that even this past week, we've probably all fallen short. Right? We've all had moments. There might be jealousy, prideful, you've lied, you've been lustful, you've been angry. Now stick with me because the good news is coming. But the Bible reveals that this is a reality, that if we're living in a place where we don't think this is true, we're living as fools. We all have this tendency to sin. Now, when we sin, not if, but when, there's three responses that we can give. We can excuse and ignore it. We can end up trapped in this cycle of sin and condemnation. Or else we can live in two things that aren't very popular in the modern church, but are timeless according to the Word of God. Confession and repentance. That's what the Word of God teaches us. Listen to 1 John 1 verse 8 again, but I'm going to go into verse 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says we're to confess. Jesus says we're to pray. Father, forgive us our sins. And remember, Confession and repentance isn't about beating yourself up all day, right? It's not just walking around, oh, I'm a terrible, terrible person. I'm just a worm on the earth. Why have I got any friends? No, it's not being in that place. It's simply going to God in prayer and meaning, God, I'm sorry. 
And in that moment, the Bible says God is faithful to forgive. And when we are forgiven, what happens? Guilt is removed and peace is restored. Now, again, we need to understand we aren't re-justified in that moment. Okay, Jesus doesn't die again. He's died once for all time, as the Bible says. So let the Bible tell you the truth. We aren't saved again every time we confess. But when we ask God to forgive, we need to understand we're not making Jesus do anything new. We're taking hold of all that he's already done and accomplished for us. I love the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51, 1-2, an old covenant prayer, but still so relevant to us today. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. Now that doesn't mean, and it's important I mention this because tomorrow morning could be a really miserable experience for you if you mishear this message. That doesn't mean that tomorrow morning you jot out, oh, and then I did this, oh yeah, on Thursday I did that, and I remember doing this. It's, it's not about that because it's not about being sin conscious. It's about being Christ conscious. It's not about confessing to a man in a box all the things that you've done terribly wrong. It's about beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and sets us free. So how does that affect our prayer life practically? It looks like, God, I'm, I'm so thankful you paid for my sins. All the stuff that Gerard spoke about earlier. God, I know yesterday I was jealous, prideful, whatever. I, I know I probably sinned in ways that I can't even remember. But I thank you that your forgiveness is available today. I thank you that your mercies are new every morning. But then, we also forgive others. Because to ask God for his forgiveness and yet at the same time be refusing to forgive others is not only bizarre, it's hypocritical. And we need to be experiencing true peace and true fellowship with God. And we won't do that all the time but refusing to forgive other people in our lives. So in prayer, God wants to talk to you and help you in the area of forgiveness, both understanding his forgiveness but also in terms of forgiving others. Jesus continues, he says, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So he talks about temptation. You see, in prayer, God can help you to defeat temptation. The word of God says over your life that there is no temptation too big that you cannot withstand it with the help of God in prayer. And so when we move on to this next stage, it's understanding that when we pray and ask God for help, it's not just about him forgiving our past, it's about him helping us to be victorious in our future. So in prayer, we can ask for his guidance, we can ask for his help. And Jesus ends this prayer with another acknowledgement of who's in charge and what kingdom we align to. He says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. This, this short word that's mentioned so many times in the Bible, the Bible actually ends on it, and we've reduced this word so often to being a word that allows God or others to understand we've finished our prayer. Right? Ever in that moment when you're praying and so you're coming and then you say, Amen. Just so you know, God, I've just finished. I've just said the word Amen. So I'll come back later on, but I've said Amen. Or, or you're in a group and stuff, and you're thinking, okay, so someone else can pray now, so I'll finish with Amen. And I'm not mocking that. I'm saying that the reality is so often we say that without understanding what that word is all about. That word has meaning. That word has power. Amen means this, so be it. Yes, I agree. May it come to pass. 
Just like Mary, when the angel Gabriel came to her and told her of God's plan for her life, and she said, yes, amen, may it come to pass, may it be to me as you have said. In other words, amen is one word, but it's actually a statement. It's a statement of agreement. And every single day, because agreement is powerful, every single day, whether you realize it or not, you are agreeing with things that have the power to shape your future. Amen is an understanding, whether you say the word or not, that you carry the heart of amen that says, God, I'm coming into agreement with your plans and your thoughts for my life. Amen.